The British monarchy is one of the oldest and most resilient in the world. No matter what you throw at it, abdication, American actresses, even a brief spot of 18th century republicanism, it endures. In the 21st century, Britain still counts a gaggle of unelected people as some of the most important the nation has to offer, thanks solely to the family they're born into. And we pay them for the privilege. In 2020, a sovereign grant report showed that the royal family cost British taxpayers £69 million. To put that into perspective, that's the combined average yearly salaries of over 2,000 people, all on 31,000 a year. And that money is on top of the income the royal family gets from revenue streams like the duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall, real estate investments and private business interests. Basically, they are loaded. But being royally flush isn't anything new. The Crown have been finding ways to make bucket loads of money since their inception, way back in 1066. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, there was an absolute fortune to be mined for a brand new trade in enslaved humans. I'm Moya Lothian MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. If you listened to Dirty Money, the final episode of our first season, where we looked at how slavery shaped Britain's banking, you might remember Professor Trevor Bernard dropping this tidbit about the Royal African Company. It's very interesting you see what's happening in Bristol, throwing into the water of the statue of Edward Colston. What we always need to remember is he was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company. The governor was the king. It was a royal company. And the Royal African Company, which was set up in the 1660s to trade with Africa, was something which was part of royal domain and was a way of getting money into the royal coffers. The plantations were very important in providing a lot of taxation. Every time you bought sugar, every time you smoked tobacco, a little tax was paid. So there was lots of ways in which ordinary people, whether they wanted to or not, were contributing to the plantation economy. One thing we need to remember, I think, about the Royal African Company and about slavery is that enslaved people were very expensive pieces of merchandise, which is a rather unfortunate way to talk about human beings. We've also previously discussed how Queen Elizabeth I sponsored some of the very first official English slave voyages, supporting Sir John Hawkins when he takes 300 enslaved Africans from Sierra Leone and sells them in the Spanish Americas. But at this point, England doesn't have the colonies to launch its own full-blown rival slave trade with the Spanish and the Portuguese. If they want to fully profit from enslavement, the English need land they can make slaves work on. And in the 17th century, they acquire it in the Caribbean and North Americas. That is when interest in the slave trade starts to peak again among the English but particularly for members of the crown and the royal family. By the time Charles II takes the throne after his father has been executed and the English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell and all of that, he is absolutely committed to involving not only England in the slave trade, but the crown itself. Because if the crown invests in the slave trade 
and is able to make enough money off of the slave trade, then the crown can continue to be independent of parliament to some extent from having that revenue stream, which Charles II and other members of the royal family knew was extremely profitable. This is Brooke Newman. I'm an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is in Richmond, Virginia. I work on the British Atlantic world, and I'm currently writing a book on the involvement of the British monarchs and members of the royal family in slave trade and in the creation of an Atlantic slave empire during the 17th and 18th centuries. When speaking with Brooke, I wanted to understand more about Britain's involvement at the start. What happened in the 1660s to really kick British slavery into high gear? The transatlantic African slave trade has existed for a while at this point, and it's dominated by the Portuguese and to a lesser extent the Spanish and the Dutch are also involved. This is a moment in the 17th century when if you want to create profitable colonies in the new world, Turning to African slavery would not have seemed in any way unusual, but particularly given the need for laborers. So prior to the 1660s, there are a number of people who come from the British Isles voluntarily to work as indentured servants, and they're hoping for a better life in the colonies. But by the time Charles II takes the throne, many of these colonies, and I'm thinking specifically of Barbados, have become known for brutal working conditions. And also the land has already been gobbled up by big planters or people who are essentially creating these larger plantations so they can create monoculture crops such as sugar and make an enormous amount of money off of this. So there's not a lot of possibility for better opportunities for voluntary migrants from the British Isles. And so because of this, the migration stream starts to dry up during the second half of the 17th century, right at the time when Charles II is thinking, okay, right, I need to supply my colonies with more laborers. There is a growing demand. There is a pre-existing trade that is occurring here. He gets into it very strategically from the very beginning. What does Charles II do? He marries a Portuguese princess in 1662, Catherine of Braganza, and with her, her 500,000 pound dowry. This was not a love match. This was absolutely an economic and political marriage alliance. He's thinking, this is my way to get my toe into not just the slave trade, but also to trading freely in Portuguese territories, and essentially freedom of movement, which is what they need to generate wealth in order to supply their colonies as well with laborers. The following year, he grants a charter to the Royal Adventurers Trading into Africa, which is a new monopoly company. And most of the people involved in this company are members of the royal family. They are peers. They are members of court. These are people who hope to profit from the African trade. Is this the company that becomes the Royal African Company? What was their initial area of interest? 
initially they're really interested in gold. There's still this fantasy that they're going to go to West Africa and find a lot of gold and barter for gold really easily. And this does not work out. And within just a few years, they start to pivot and focus much more on the slave trade and on slavery. And there are a number of thousands of people who are delivered to the Caribbean colonies in particular by the Royal Adventurers during the 1660s. But ultimately, that company goes under due to mismanagement. And it's really because a lot of the people involved um, don't have that much experience. And they don't really know what they're doing. They just know they want to make a profit. So this company is reorganized in 1672 as the Royal African Company. And it's really after 1672 that we see England becoming much more embroiled in the transatlantic slave trade and creating a pipeline of enslaved people coming from West Africa to the colonies. And, you know, the primary destination were colonies such as Jamaica and Barbados. So there was a growing demand for slave laborers during this time. So this is how the Royal African Company becomes embroiled in the slave trade and was literally led from the very top by our monarchy. What I want to know is, how much were individual monarchs profiting from enslaving Africans? Charles II was a shareholder. His younger brother, James, the Duke of York, was the largest shareholder of the Royal African Company. So he actually made the most personal profit off of the sale of the slave trade. He was also the governor of the Royal African Company. And so he is deeply involved in the transatlantic slave trade during this time period. Also, you have the Queen Mother, who is invested in the Royal African Company, Charles II's sister, Henrietta Anne, and then also the king's nephew, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. So you have a lot of people who are affiliated with the king. And the reason why they're all putting their money into this is they see this as a good investment. They think they will get money back by investing in the slave trade. They don't view this in any way as an unsavory investment at all at the time. This is this is essentially cutting edge wave of the future stuff that they're doing. They're investing in the English empire, in the Atlantic world, and they're investing in the sale of Africans at a time when they are anticipating that the English will become more and more involved. How many people are the Royal African Company trading at this point in time? In the 1680s, the Royal African Company brought as many as 100,000 people from Africa to England's New World colonies. That's a lot of people. And these are people who are captured, who are enslaved, many of whom do not survive the Middle Passage. And the royal family, they are benefiting directly from the suffering and sale of these men, women, and children from Africa, and particularly the Duke of York. And by 1687, and I think this is an important point to make just about how embroiled the royal family and the crown was with the slave trade and with slavery, tax revenue in the form of customs on colonial staples that were produced by slave labor comprised a third of total crown revenue. You know, this is not even in the 18th century yet. So we're still in the reign of James II at this point. Love money at stake here. It goes even further than cash though, doesn't it? Enslaved people are branded to show that they are the property of this royal company, in some cases with the initials of individual royals, 
They had DUI for the Duke of York and then other brands that make it very clear that the monarchs are actually not just involved in this company behind the scenes, that they're actually putting their, their mark on the bodies of enslaved people and proudly putting their mark and claiming them as their property, not just the property of this company or of England, but of the royal family. So this is a crown endeavor from the very beginning. And I, I think that that is a really crucial point to make because when people talk about who owes what and who should acknowledge what, especially now that we have been talking about reparations and there's been many, many institutions, universities and companies, particularly in the UK, acknowledging that they have received funding and other benefits directly from either the slave trade or colonial slavery. It's the crown and the royal family that make this possible on a large scale, beginning with the Stuarts in the 1660s. And they wholeheartedly embrace slavery and the slave trade. So slavery wasn't a passive income for the royal family they were actively having their enslaved people branded with their initials. It was an industry they supported knowingly and profited from. We've seen quite a few institutions who recently have begun to acknowledge their historical ties to slavery. This is not something the current British royal family seem to have done. To not acknowledge that and to not talk about that at a moment when everyone is talking about this, I think it's a very poor move on behalf of the Crown. But I, I'm not surprised that they don't want to discuss this because it's much easier to not acknowledge it or to highlight the role of the royal family in the abolition movement because that is a more positive story. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that the royal family helped to transport such a large number of people in the 17th century. This would have continued merrily along if it wasn't for the glorious revolution of 1688, when James II is deposed from the throne for being both absolutist and Catholic. He's replaced by his daughter, who becomes Mary II, along with her husband, William of Orange. But if you thought the Royal African Company would suddenly disappear with a drastic regime change, You'd be wrong. Edward Colston, the deputy governor of the Royal African Company, even transfers his shares in the business to William of Orange to continue the monarchical involvement. What does this tell us about the relationship between the British monarchy and the slave trade? What I think it's, it really signals is that there is a strong association between the transatlantic slave trade and national wealth and glory, and that to have the crown's stamp of approval and political and financial backing on this organization justifies its continued monopoly, at least for a time, because that was something that was of major concern during the 1690s. And there's a number of pamphlets that are published arguing about how, you know, this is this monopoly is not working and that it's denying other merchants the possibility of investing in the slave trade, and it's actually creating a system where there's not enough enslaved Africans arriving on a regular basis. 
in the colonies. So there's this tension. And I do think by continuing to involve the royal family, the Royal African Company can make their case for, well, we have this monopoly. We are essentially in bed with the crown and the royal family. This is a family business. This is aligned with the interests of the British monarchy. But by the end of the 17th century, that's just no longer working because of the need for more and more laborers. And the fact that this is seen as essentially standing in the way of progress because they're preventing so many different people from becoming involved in the transatlantic slave trade. In William and Mary's reign, the Royal African Company loses its complete monopoly on the slave trade because other English merchants want in on the gold mine. But I wanted to know what happens to this family business once Queen Anne takes the throne after William and Mary. By the time of the reign of Queen Anne, she actually is very supportive of the transatlantic slave trade. And she wins a contract known as the Asiento in 1713 so that the English can transport slaves to Spanish America. And this is an extremely valuable contract that she wins. And she ends up selling it to the South Sea Company for 7.5 million pounds. And the South Sea Company gets most of its slaves from the Royal African Company. And so you've got all, all of these different people embedded in this system And the queen is actually getting a cut as well. She is receiving a quarter of the profits generated from the slave trade. That is a whopping number. £7,500,000 in 1713 is equivalent to more than £200 million today. That is how profitable just one, one contract to transport slaves was to the royal family. When Queen Anne died in 1714, her successor, George I, inherited her shares. He also purchased more. And so they continued to invest the royal family and the crown in the slave trade into the 18th century. And also his son, the future George II, the Prince of Wales, he's also investing in the South Sea Company. And both George I and II become honorary governors of the South Sea Company. So they're investing in slavery. It's almost a family business at this point through all of these different companies. And even after the South Sea Company bubble bursts in 1720, the Crown and Parliament, they're still very supportive of expanding the slave trade. And the slave trade at this point is now really becoming dominant in places like Bristol, Liverpool and London, where these merchants and these particular port cities are getting a growing share of the transatlantic slave trade and starting to really dominate it. And there's a lot of members of the former Royal African Company who are also involved at this point as well. It's not until George III that we start seeing any reconsideration of Britain's involvement in the slave trade within the monarchy itself. About 230 years of direct crown profiteering from enslaving people. But George III isn't motivated by any great abolitionist sentiment, is he? For George III, we know that by the time he takes the throne, and then again after the Seven Years' War in the 1760s, he has a very large Atlantic empire at this point, and a number of extremely lucrative colonies that are essentially slave societies at this stage. 
And the slaved British are the primary transporter of enslaved people in this period by the time George III takes the throne. And in the 1760s and 1770s, there are very few opponents to the slave trade or slavery. Slavery is something that despite concerns about potential revolt, which was a concern, they weren't that worried about the slave trade or whether or not it should continue. There was still a strong sense that continuing to invest, continuing to ensure that the colonies receive a steady supply of enslaved Africans is what is necessary to sustain the British Atlantic Empire and to continue to generate wealth that will prove beneficial to the nation, to the crown. And George III did actually own enslaved people in some of the islands. So in Jamaica, for example, he actually owned a group of people called, quote, the King's Negroes. And these were slaves that the crown specifically owned. And that's also something I have been working on and a couple of other people are working on at the moment is tracing what these enslaved people were used for. But these were particular slaves that the crown owned. In addition to benefiting, obviously, from slavery in other respects. But there are some advisors to the crown. Christopher Brown has actually written about this in his book, Moral Capital, who start to kind of think about what would happen if we scaled back on the slave trade. Do we really want to continue to bring enslaved people into these colonies where they already compose the vast majority of the population? Or in a place like Jamaica, 90% of the population is enslaved. Is this really safe? And the same year that George III became king, there's a massive slave revolt in Jamaica known as Tacky's Revolt that is at that point before the Haitian Revolution, the most serious revolt in the Caribbean and particularly in the British possession. Tacky's Revolt, or Tacky's War, was the most significant slave revolt to happen in the 18th century British colonies. The rebellion was led by Tacky, originally a chief within the Fante people, a community which was located in central and coastal regions of modern-day Ghana before being enslaved. Tacky and his followers planned to take Jamaica from the British colonists and make it a black-led, free country. The revolt and battle, often left out of the Seven Years' War narrative, began on Easter Monday in 1760 and ended after five days with over 1,000 black lives lost, including Tacky's. A further 500 rebel slaves were captured and resold. This revolt sent shockwaves to the plantation and slavery networks. There is a possibility that they could lose one of these major colonies to hostile and militant Africans who are newer, who are coming from West Africa with military experience, and who want not only freedom, but they want to establish their own society with their own culture and not just be enslaved and subservient to the British. This is a concern during the second half of the 18th century because of the fact that there are a variety of different slave revolts that occur and rumors of slave revolts. But it's really not until the Haitian Revolution that George III in particular, and I'm talking about that there's evidence of this, 
starts to become very concerned that the slave trade may actually be problematic and that the slave trade could lead to the loss of his empire. And this is after he's already lost the North American colonies. And so the, the Haitian Revolution is this flashpoint. It is a major turning point. And it is the moment at which we see the crown pivot really for the first time and start to think about pulling back some on the transatlantic slave trade, but not on the system of slavery itself. The increasingly organized resistance of enslaved people had finally given the crown pause for thought. But their involvement was far from over. And in the next episode, we'll dig even deeper into the parallel ideologies that have upheld the British monarchy for centuries and kept them invested in systems of slavery, even after abolition. If you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, Please rate and review our show in your favourite podcast app. It helps more people discover the show. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr. Alison Bennett. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Adamora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>